Welcome to Hyperspadius Conversations with co-host John Filippelli and Bonnie Steinberg. We are members of the community that have experienced living with Hyperspadius, and we want to begin the dialogue with members of that community, the men, women, and parents whose lives, or the lives of those they love, have also been affected by this common yet largely unknown condition, and to create more safety to have these conversations. And we have, you know, a really special episode today that I think a lot of people will really find great value in. I know I'm excited, Bonnie, and I I feel like you're going to be excited about this too. It's so rare for a mother to be so open. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say, Ashley. Yes, I'm looking forward to to speaking. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, so, yes, without further ado, uh, our guest today is uh, Ashley. She's the mother of a uh, 20-year-old son, and uh, she's come on today to share her experiences and her family's experience with hypospadias. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Let's dive right in. Your mom, obviously, and your son was born with hypospadias. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your son's medical history as it relates to hypospadias? Sure. So my son, he is a twin, just for reference, and he was born with penosphotal hypospadias with Cordy, and he has now had, I think, about 16 surgeries, and he has upcoming surgeries as well. So we are not finished. This has been going on for his whole life. We've been through three different physicians, three different facilities. And we are now, um, we have now been with a physician out of state and we have uh, high hopes that this will be, you know, close to the end here for him as far as repairing. Right, It's been a very long journey for him. Can you walk us through that a little bit? You know, your experience of finding out, you know, I have so many questions, but we'll start. Yeah, we'll start there. You know, 20 years ago when um, I had uh, my son, they were, him and his brother were born early, 31 weeks. um, And I just remember the doctor telling me in the OR actually, you know, after he was born that um, your son is hypospadias. I know you don't probably know what that is, but it's going to be a real easy fix. You'll meet with a urologist. They'll do a repair and everything will be fine. And at the time I was very, I mean, I was out of it obviously from a C-section, but my main concern was you know, I had him early. Is he going to be okay? I'll deal with hypospadias later. And so I think I didn't really get a grasp of it until he had a, um, a stay in the NICU for um, several weeks with his brother. And I just kind of started getting that basic foundation of what hypospadias was just from the neonatologists and the urologists that did come to see him at the bedside. But again, it was kind of on the back burner. It was just like, hey, we're not going to fix this until six months of age, we'll deal with this later. And at the time I was 25-ish, I'm thinking I was still fairly young and I was going to school to be in the medical field, but I I hadn't even started any of my medical classes. So again, all the terminology was very new for me. We had stayed with a physician locally and that's kind of when we got the gist of everything. It would be a three-stage repair and everything would be fine after that. And I, the most of the surgeries, I feel like there has been three stage repairs and then he's had the complication of scar tissue and the cordy returning. So we had to go back times to fix that. And um, once we were done locally, we decided to reach out to a physician in the San Francisco area. And at the time, again, I was young. I 
I did as much research as I possibly could. And there was only so much at the time out there, you know, online. And and we decided to have some procedures done in San Francisco. I felt like he was in great care, but he ended up having the same complications again. So we started another three-stage repair. So I feel like every time he's gone back in, it's always been these two to three-stage repair surgeries. So that would explain why he's had so many. It's just that same complication, you know, and, and the more you work on an area, the more risk you're, you're taking, right. It's, it's more damage to that area. So we're, you know, we're back at this three-stage repair again. And, um, unfortunately it's as he's older, he, his complications are getting a little bit more severe this time around. So, uh, more fistulas, more constriction in areas, more scar tissue, that sort of thing. So that's kind of why we are where we are today mm-hmm. is mainly just from complication, I think. How would you say your sons handled it emotionally from what you've observed? Honestly, I think he's a rock star. He's my son. So yes, I'm biased, but I know that he remains, tries to remain as strong as he can possibly be on the outside for himself and for his mom. And overall, I think he's handled it great, but I know that he struggles. You know, we've gotten very close over this journey extremely close. And I feel like we're kind of in this together. I feel like I'm the the one who kind of understands him the most, Mm -hmm. um, as much as it possibly can be. But, you know, I'm going to be honest, you know, he's has probably some depression with it, not in the sense to where he just wants to stay in his room all day. He really, really tries every day, but it's, it's a daily struggle for him to kind of psych himself up to uh, approach the world and feel confident about himself as a young man. For sure. And as I shared in my story and my experiences, I had the exact same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I had severe pentascrotal hypospadias and had a lot of the same issues. Yes. Uh, so I can definitely think back to when I was his age and a lot of the the challenges, you know, whether it's having to kind of steal yourself for another procedure. And then if that's not happening, it's kind of like this anticipatory anxiety that kind of develops, you know, and then there's just trying to live your life with your, with your family and friends and every everyday things that everybody else deals with. Um, so absolutely. You know, I, I have uh, so many questions now when you had your son and I mean, it makes sense at the time. I mean, you're going to just go to like the, a local place, but in terms of finding doctors, like what kind of information was provided to you? Were, were you given any information from pediatrician or obstetrician or did you have to do it yourself? Like, how did that work? You know, I was, we have a, a very good local children's hospital near where I live. And um, at the time that was kind of like, it made sense. It was our top facility locally. I was close. This was the best place for him to be. And I think that probably was a referral from a pediatrician, just, you know, hey, there's some great doctors here at this hospital. And that's how we ended up being where we were. And unfortunately, you know, uh, the first doctor that operated on him ended up leaving for another state. And so we ended up kind of continuing care with the physician that took over. And we weren't happy, I guess, with the outcome. So that's when I started trying to think maybe we need to take this someplace else. But it was it it was mainly just kind of word of mouth pediatrician, but just really keeping it very minimal local. There was not much said at the pediatrician's office. There wasn't any sort of uh, other resources that I had other than the internet and my own curiosity. Were you ever offered the choice to not do surgery? He was obviously 
urinating healthfully, right? We were never given that choice. It was just a very matter of fact, this is what needs to be done. And that was through the neonatologist, that was through the pediatrician, and that was also through the urologist that we were referred to for surgery. How do you see that now? What information would you like to see parents get? I would like to see, which I feel like I'm seeing a little bit more now for you know the, the younger parents with the younger kids, the option of not doing surgery. I still think I would have gone through with surgery for him, but it would have been nice to just be able to look online and be able to see this is what happens and it's okay if you choose not to do surgery. Um, or this is the course of action that we'll take by a doctor on if you choose not to, we'll just kind of reevaluate every year. And then also what comes along with having surgery. I don't feel like there was a lot of, maybe there wasn't a lot of information at the time 20 years ago of what, what the complications could be if you just kept going for surgery after surgery after surgery. There just wasn't a whole lot out there. Um, so I think, yeah, just that medical side of it, of what could happen if you chose to wait or if you chose to proceed with surgery, what all that entailed. How does he relate to his twin? He, you know, his twin obviously didn't have the same condition. They grew up very close as they have gotten older. They're kind of doing their own thing. And they've always been very different in personality. But I think it's hard for my son to, I would imagine it's hard for him to relate to his brother, just in the sense that he's been kind of stuck here dealing with all of this, why why brother gets to lead a normal life. But I don't think that that, I don't feel like that has made his love for his brother any different. There's no, I don't feel like there's any resentment, nothing. It's just kind of that desire to wish he could be doing the same stuff. Well, how does his brother relate to him? Does he understand what he's going through? I, some level? I think he... Deep, deep down, he tries, but because uh, his brother is in the military, so he's not physically around. Personality-wise, his brother's very quiet, and I think deep down, he wants to have a discussion with him about all that to really try to understand. That hasn't happened yet, unfortunately, but I know it's a sensitive subject. But yeah. I know my son is, you know, he needs a lot of support, and especially, you know, I, I feel like a brotherly, fatherly support is great for him. If he can get that, he really needs it. His father and I have been divorced for several years and um, I'm kind of my son's shoulder right now to, to lean on. And he does have a stepfather and it, you know, we, we all try to help him as much as we can, but yeah, definitely would like, hopefully his brother will come around one day to, to try to sit down and try to understand this condition and what mm -hmm. he, uh, my son has gone through. Sure. It's, to hear that his twin is in the military, my assumption is that there's a lot of macho or ideas about masculinity that are important in that context and how that plays out also in their relationship or in your son with all the surgeries, how he understands what his options are. Well, I, I could definitely see that, uh, Bonnie, because as someone with hypospadias, you know, Growing up with it, there is a sense of shame associated with it. And you do kind of see these messages, right, in media or TV or whatever of what a quote unquote real man is or, you know, these these kind of macho things to aspire to say. And, and I know women have it, too. But when, you know, we're talking about a condition like this and it's something that has a lot of secrecy, you know, it's not something that you could just walk into a dinner party and start really necessarily talking about. It's not really going to happen that way. Uh, so you kind of see these things. And to your point, Bonnie, I mean, the military is about 
as macho as it as it gets right so you know you to see that kind of secrecy that and kind of shame that comes along with having hypospadias not just for the the guy either it's you know i'm sure parents siblings might when they understand what's going on might have a sense of that and that's only fair i mean makes sense and this kind of as ashley was saying too i mean if her your other son is kind of quiet and reserved and the time will have to come <laughs> like you were saying for that yes. for that dialogue to happen you know it's it's um it's a very fascinating thing but i, I see your point bonnie because it's really um at, at the heart of so much of this you know about what make what makes a real man and like you said ashley i mean your son is like a champ doing this so knowing just what i know so far i mean he's just as strong and just as resilient as anyone in the military. Yeah. It's, it's a full-time gig, full-time gig to deal yeah. with it. So I do want to follow up on that. What areas, Ashley, do you feel like you've, through this journey with your son and your family, uh, what areas do you feel like you've received support or maybe there was, you know, places where it was lacking in it, you see opportunity for there to be better support, whether it's family, the medical community, whatever it is. I feel like family, first off, has been very supportive, at least in my opinion. I do feel like my son feels that way. Family has been very supportive. You know, we're a smaller family and we obviously tried to keep it amongst ourselves and, you know, out of respect for my son. And um, but that they've been very supportive from day one. The medical community, I feel like it is more just a, where we're coming from. It's a little bit more supportive now. I don't feel like that was the case back then. I also feel like there um, maybe is not enough knowledge about the condition. You know, my son um, tried therapy a few times and even just going through all the doctors, nurse practitioners, medical assistants, any person that my son had to have a conversation with as he was sitting in a doctor's office, I feel like the understanding is not there. The empathy, if you will, I guess, a lot of people don't know the term hypospadias. And when he describes what that is and what he's gone through, I just don't feel like as, you know, people don't know how to respond to that if they don't know what it is. And so I, I do wish that there was a little bit more given that area. I do wish there was more knowledge and people understood how sensitive and difficult it is for a man to talk about this and maybe a little bit more compassion. It's this day and age, everyone's busy, especially medical field. Doctors are busy. Everyone's just busy, busy, busy. And I, I feel like maybe some more compassion from medical teams would, would be really, really beneficial for these patients, especially a young man his age. I feel like they're great with kids, but as they get kind of older, I feel like there's not a lot of understanding of how to deal with that age group, so to speak. Do you look back at the birth experience when the first doctor said, we're going to fix it, it's going to be fine? Do you feel that you were misled? That's a great question. I do in the sense a, a little bit because of our journey with it. But I know our journey is not as difficult as others journeys, you know, other parents with children have been able to get it corrected, say after, you know, a three stage repair, and life is great for them. I'm a little tainted, honestly, because our journey has been a lot more difficult. And you are hopeful with every procedure. And when that doesn't go as planned, and it goes in a negative direction, it's really hard to hold on to that hope that there is going to be a, 
positive outcomes. It's like what John was saying earlier, you just kind of have this, I can't remember what you said, just leading up to that next, you know, it's, it's always just this anxious, you know, what's it going to be like, what you have to take one day at a time, but yet you're just, you just want to get to where you're done, you know, and you just want to start life. And I, I, I think it would just have been nice to know in the beginning that worst case scenario, A, B, and C can happen. For me, that would have been nice to know, not just paint this picture of butterflies and rainbows because it is not like that for everybody right right and that's the other thing too i mean uh i just just kind of ties in with what you were saying earlier too which i wanted to ask about but i think you made such an important point when people are having a surgery they're not educated by anyone on what happens afterward and what that was one of the most common things that i've heard from anyone that i've spoken to that's been a parent you know it's so so important i mean even for me personally you know cuz i don't have kids but from my my research and, and such finding out that child life you know the child life program existed and yes. that wasn't available at least to my knowledge when i was a child so that wasn't an option for our family when i was going through some of the surgeries back then but even more importantly being able to navigate after you get home being able to navigate what questions to ask? What are things going to look like? How are things going to be? And, you know, that's one of the things I've heard repeatedly that is sorely lacking, you know, is that kind of guidance, education that can really probably make a difference from, you know, having someone not having a little bit of these kind of regrets and maybe not regrets, but saying, yeah, that would really help. And things could have gone better in that sense. Right. 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 And that's great that you said that because after all the, the procedures that he's been through, it really is just kind of, uh, okay, we'll see you in three to six months. We'll see how things are. One of the, the procedures when we had gone to San Francisco area, when he was done with those repairs, I remember the physician, because I had a, a copy of all the medical records, and I remember his wording on one of how he closed this procedure. And he said, hopefully, you know, we were done with the three-stage repair. Everything looks great. Hopefully, the mom will have closure. And to this day, I can't seem to just quite forget that because I thought, number one, it's not for me. I want my son to be able to have closure one day, but it couldn't for me and my son, it didn't stop there. And knowing, looking back, it really never ends. This is a lifelong condition that my son will live with, whether it's healed or not. I don't know what your experience is now, now that you're done with procedures and all that, but mentally, emotionally, psychologically, this will be lifelong for him. So it really, truly never ends. And that would have been really nice to just have more support in that area as well of, of maybe start therapy at an earlier age. Let's um, connect with therapists and any sort of other therapy that would help. But no, you just, it kind of just falls off and you just basically come back and see a doctor if you're having more issues and they're just outside of that, there really isn't a whole lot of support. Yeah. I have a few questions from what you said. And one of the things that I never was warned about or told about was the aftercare. And in the early 80s, when our son was born, we were in the hospital for a long stretch. Like I think the first, the real one, the big surgery was 10 days. Mm. And yet at, in subsequent surgeries, we were left alone with the aftercare. I think the insurance system changed, the hospital expectations. And it was just like, okay, go on home with this catheter and you empty the cat, you know, and it was a uh, hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot, yeah. How do you expect us to manage at home with these complicated uh, aftercare issues? 
And so that's one question that I have. Are parents warned about that? What would you like to tell parents about that whole aspect of it? And the the wishful thinking on the part of the two doctors. So the doctor, when he's born, we're going to do surgery. It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And then after 16 surgeries or whatever, the surgeon writes, I hope the mother gets closure. There's so much wishful thinking. Yes. Why isn't there a focus on the true outcome for the child and the growing, developing young man? Yes. And my other question is, you said that you were training for something in medicine. Tell us a little bit about how that's informed your understanding. So I am a nurse. I was trying to go to nursing school. And at the time that I had uh, my son and his brother, I wanted to be home with them and take care of them. And I declined my acceptance into the nursing program and waited. It was in the lottery system at the time. So I had to wait a few more years, but it allowed me to be at home with them and to take care of them and just to deal basically, you know, with my son's procedures. So it, it really was a blessing in disguise. Has that helped me today with him? 100%. I work with infants and I see this very often this condition. So it helps. And so I I feel like now with social media, I feel like there's a lot more, at least with the office and doctor that we are with now, a lot of support for parents and what to expect for the aftercare. And and we're, you know, we, we see a doctor in Texas. So we have a lot of FaceTime calls, but there is a lot more support. I feel like for the aftercare on what to do, what to look for, nothing like that 20 years ago, not for me. It just wasn't in that. Yeah. As a nurse in the knee for infants, when you see other parents who just gave birth to a child or to young children with hypospadias, are you empowered or emboldened to speak your truth to them? I feel like I am. I have the opportunity to, but at the same time, as a professional in that in in my field, I have to offer a basic general idea of what this condition will bring. But honestly, I do have to limit what I say because again, I'm I my experience with my son has been very complex and I I don't ever want to make another parent feel like this is going to be their journey because they may have the you know a very happy ending, not like what my son and I went. But I do, I try to kind of, you know, give them some understanding of what the condition is and what that might entail you know, the doctor visits and and to help them really just do your research and really try to understand, talk to your son and keep that communication open as he grows, as he ages, always talk about it, you know, at five years old, talk about it. Even if everything's repaired when he's 10, when he's 15, always talk about it because it's always going to be on his mind. Right. One of the paradoxes is you talk about it a lot in your family and we made the mistake of not talking about it a lot in our family, but we we were absolutely scrupulous about his privacy at school. It was not on his school records, and we had right. contradictory. We were always debating whether that was the right thing, and it sounds like you also you're o- very open in your small fan in your nuclear family, yes. but at in the public arena school. Jim, you are protecting his privacy, have protected his privacy. Right, right. No one, no one knew in elementary school, in high school, middle school, high school. You're, you're correct on that. You know, there wasn't discussion about it. 
to anybody else because nobody would understand. And, right. and out of respect for him, yeah, you, you don't, you know, it was very hush-hush. So Bonnie, you had a really interesting point just now about privacy. So if maybe Ashley could talk a little bit about that, how you've handled the issue of, of privacy. Bonnie was mentioning in schools and, and such. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Through elementary school, middle school, high school, it was very private in in that area of his life. There was no telling friends, not confiding in anyone um, that I'm aware of uh, on his end or mine. Just again, our immediate family. In elementary school, he had some times to where, you know, he would have to urinate frequently. And I think at the time, the school nurse kind of had just a quick little update on that why he was allowed to use the restroom as often as he needed to. That was the extent of it. And we didn't really have to start dealing with it physically until, I guess, around high school. But even then, it was stuff that he was dealing with physically. But everything is, if there was any discussion, if anybody knew anything, it was just our immediate family. But it was not talked about with extended family. It's definitely not a fun conversation. And I know that my son didn't want anyone to know. But, you know, my son played sports, had a lot of friends, very active that way but no one had any idea. His, I'm not sure if this will kind of fit into that area. His brother never, that at least that I'm aware of, you know, there was never mentioned any of any girlfriends. No one ever came over. I don't know if that was the reason. My son was not putting himself out there to develop any sort of relationship mm-hmm. with anyone. Very, very protective and scared. So that's kind of just what his life was as he was, you know, in school. Do you remember how you introduced the topic to his brother, like how old they were or how that went? You know, I rem- I don't remember the age. I, I want to say that I probably mentioned it to his brother early on in high school, but I never really set him down to discuss the ins and outs of it. And I should have. Mm. For me as a parent, it was more of if there's nothing wrong and my son's not coming to me with any issues, then everything's okay. And I'm not going to make him feel uncomfortable by talking about it. That was the one mistake I made. Just if he's not coming to me, we won't have any conversations about it. I'll let him do that whenever he feels comfortable. But in the meantime, I really should have just kept that line of communication open. Uh, How did you explain the 17 surgeries going to the hospital and the aftercare? With the, my other son? Yeah. It was just more so that brother was having a surgery. And again, it wasn't really talked about. I think it, I think his brother knew something was up, but again, was very quiet, reserved, didn't, didn't ask questions. And my son, I have, um, I'm remarried and have two younger children that are, have lots of questions and very aware of what, (laughs) what older brother is doing and where we're going. So there's questions now. And honestly, I just keep it very vague that we're having a procedure done, but it's something I'll talk about when they're a little bit older to where they can understand. The other question I was going to ask you at his age and He's he's got an impending surgery in a few weeks. Yes. Has there been any discussion or thought that you're aware of in terms of is he going to stick with his pediatric urologist or is he going to now find an adult urologist? So he sees an adult surgeon that's doing it and we have not seen the pediatric one in years. So we, we will stick with this particular doctor and but locally he does not have anyone. So that's the downside is um, probably should have that for future issues that may arise. But for now, we've just been doing lots of traveling. 
Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's, it falls back to finding the, a good doctor that you're comfortable with, Absolutely. you know, locally and that understand, and that will be listening and, and really trying to help as, as much as possible. Definitely. And one of the other things I just wanted to touch on what, what could be done differently or, you know, from, from kind of like the guy's perspective. And honestly, Ashley, I mean, everything that you've shared today and in our previous conversations, I mean, you're doing it right. The idea really, as far as I'm concerned, is you've gotten to a point of where you're you're normalizing it. You know, you and your son have such a, a close relationship and that's going to carry him through for his entire life, having that and normalizing it because there is, there's a, there's a sense of shame. And I mean, I hear your story and I hear so much of my story in there mm-hmm. and up to and including, you know, my relationship with my mother who was there with me in the hospital and for aftercare and did all the things you're doing, you know, we didn't travel, uh, you know, as far as you've had to, but in terms of having that support and that relationship around this is, I, I, I mean, I can't, I can't stress it enough. So that part alone is massive in a good way. And okay. I mean, just, I would say just going forward, just continue to validate what he is going through and to continue to validate what he's saying, because as he grows and continues to grow and physically and in every possible way and mentally and emotionally and his feelings change and everything. He may have different viewpoints as time goes on. And he, some days he might be frustrated and kind of reserved and angry, or some days he may be fine. And, you know, every day is going to be different, but validating that and understanding that, you know, what he's saying is probably coming from something that he's experienced already that he's just now bringing up, if that makes sense. So those are really the things that jump out to me, but everything that you've been through and he's been through together and your family's been through with this. I mean, it just, Bonnie, you feel the same way, right? I mean, it's just. Yeah. But also John, remember the transition from feeling like you were the only one to realizing that no, there's a whole world of men whose repairs did not go spectacularly. They they keep having complications. We did the one podcast with Jim who had 27 surgeries in the middle of his last surgery. His urologist brought him out of the anesthesia and said, would you like your original urethra? That's a huge story. So your son is not in the minority. He's part of a huge community. And unfortunately, the the community doesn't know each other well, and they're kind of lost for each other. Right. But that transition is a great potential to know that he's part of a, a larger community. He's not in, in this by himself. You guys are right. not alone. And thank you for uh, saying that because it's it's true. And you need to hear that, you know, that there's others out there. Yeah. I also understand the idea that you want to trust the people that to whom you tell the story and trust the people that are going to support your son and that they're not jokers or they, you know, they're not nasty, Mm -hmm. I guess. Right. It's really brave. I think to do this podcast because you really are going out of your privacy. Yeah. And that's what I told my son. I said, this is, it's needed. And, and I hope that it can help another parent uh, because I would have loved to have had these podcasts around 20 years ago it would have definitely helped me feel more confident in the choices that i made for my son yeah and i i just you know i i echo bonnie's sentiment i think um we're both so grateful and thankful that you came on today and how brave and courageous you're being and how brave and courageous your your son's been through this experience 
if I could pass on any advice to any other parents, it would be to do your research. And when you think you're done, do more research (laughs) and really weigh the pros and cons of choosing surgery, not choosing surgery. Try to reach out, get some some real accounts of what people are going through. Um, Try to be open to complications and what could happen. And honestly, my, my number one, to talk to your son. Because that's the one regret I have. I I wish I would have been talking to him nonstop from as young as he could possibly understand me. I would have kept that conversation going. And and just a a weekly check-in, a monthly check-in. Hey, how's everything going? You want to talk to me about anything? And if you're able to, to maybe start therapy at a young age. Because I think if that was started and they were used to that and they had that resource, I think it would have helped my son greatly as he continued to get older and to be more open and feel comfortable that, Hey, he could come to me and tell me something is not quite right. And that's it. I just, if if I had somebody helping me with that back then, (laughs) I would have, I would have listened. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of benefit from this podcast. So thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank Um, you. And um, if you have any questions about this episode of Hypospadius Conversations, you can email us at hypospadiusbook at gmail.com. And until then, we'll see you the next time on Hypospadius Conversations. The hosts of this podcast are not medical professionals. And the information presented during the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. If you or someone you love has a medical question concerning hypospadias, please consult your physician.